The following podcast may include adult content. Welcome to Bound Off, a literary audio broadcast. In this edition, we have four stories. La Vie du Jour by Stephen Gullion, 12 Steps Down by Mark Budman, The Poet's Head is in My Lap by Elizabeth Ellen, and Yellow Chicken Claw by Christine Boyka Kluge. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcast. La Vie du Jour, written by Stephen Gullion. Read by Dave Robinson. Listening time, 11 minutes. La Vie du Jour, by Stephen Gullion. I remember my first death like it was yesterday. I was sitting at a red light in my green 1965 Volkswagen Beetle. This was in 69. Listening to a song on the radio, Blue Cheer's version of Summertime Blues, when I heard a police siren. I looked in the rear view just in time to see a Mustang hurtling down the hill with a cop car in pursuit. And in that glimpse, I knew the Mustang would never stop in time. I knew I was going to die. The funny thing is, the Mustang didn't kill me, but it shoved me into the intersection where a tractor-trailer loaded with recliners flattened us, the Beetle and me. When I say flattened, I'm not being hyperbolic. The cleanup workers couldn't tell brains from brake pads. They didn't scrape up enough of me to fill a ketchup bottle. My spirit squirted upward from the remains, as it always does. Looking down on the scene, I saw my car, reduced to green tinfoil, and the Mustang, top sheared off in flames under the truck. People screamed and ran around and all that. But as I ascended, the voices faded out quickly. In fact, within moments, the details of my entire life grew distant and irrelevant, no more meaningful than a hand of solitaire. If I'd had more time to reflect, I might have been surprised that my physical senses were intact. I could see. I felt the wind. I remember wanting a beer. I rose far above the earth, until the land beneath me was a green smear and the horizon curved away against the black sky. When I looked upward, I saw the bright light and felt myself sucked toward it, thinking, holy shit, I'm going to heaven after all. When I got closer, I saw the light was just some guy with a heavy-duty flashlight and earmuffs, like those guys at the airport. I floated up and he said, it'll be about 10-15 minutes, you can have a seat in the bar. He flicked the flashlight and I found myself sitting on a bar stool surrounded by a bunch of other dead people. They looked just like people in a bar on earth, but I knew they were dead. When you're dead, you can tell. At a table in the corner sat three leggy girls and a couple of guys, mid-thirties, gold chains and sunglasses, two empty beer pitchers on the table, and another half-empty. They were laughing and joking. I eavesdropped. They'd been flying to Vegas on a private plane when the pilot, on his inaugural acid trip, flew straight into the ground in the middle of the desert. The girls were giving the pilot a pretty hard time. I looked behind me and saw two long-haired, mustachioed boys of high school age. One of them said, Hey, were you the guy in the Volkswagen? I nodded. Huh. We were in the Mustang. He shrugged, and they sat down. In the afterlife, nobody apologizes much. I felt no need for an apology, either. I can't say that I felt so sorry to be dead, considering what a failed affair my life had been. Forty-eight years old, and not a damn thing to show for it. I had no family. I'd been married once in college to a girl named Rhonda. Before the wedding, I'd roomed with three guys in a dorm suite, 
and Rhonda hung out with the four of us. After six months of marriage, Rhonda left. I was ruined, depressed. I moved out of the apartment and went back to the dorm, but there I found Rhonda, shacked up with my ex-roommates. I had nowhere to go. The guy said I could sleep on the couch, but it was weird listening to the three of them and Rhonda in the other room. I left after a couple of days. After that, I dropped out of school and got a job hanging wallpaper, and for the next 28 years, until that truck full of recliners put an end to things, that's all I did. After Rhonda left, women smelled death on me, or maybe it was a wallpaper paste. Who can say? Anyway, there I sat, in the middle of the sexual revolution, unable to get a date. And to make matters worse, Mr. Dimkins, my boss, was gay as a Christmas monkey. Every time I finished a job, he'd give me a pat on the rear, like I'd scored the winning touchdown. Sometimes, when he'd been drinking, he'd just keep patting. Then I'd have to punch him. When he sobered up, he'd sulk for a while, then he'd give me nothing but bathrooms for a while, and then we'd hang paper like nothing happened. I don't think his wife ever knew. I lived in a one-bedroom apartment over Happy Fung's Chinese restaurant in a building held together by cockroaches. Cockroaches oozed through the walls of that apartment, wiggled from behind the baseboards, squeezed under the door, scurried through the vents, popped out of the electrical sockets. They swam up through the toilet. They crawled through the keyhole. It wasn't my fault. I never kept food in the apartment other than beer, and I never ate in. Trying to keep the roaches out, I duct-taped every crack and crevice. Sometimes the tape would keep them out for a few days or weeks, but then pressure would build in the walls, and the duct-tape would rupture, and they'd be everywhere. Maybe I should have moved. I don't know. Fung made a mean fried rice, and I ate it all the time. Eventually, I gave up on women. I became pear-shaped and balding. I remained short. My head seemed misaligned in some way, as if an impatient child had put it together from spare parts. Chronic intractable eczema flared over my body like sunspots and caused me to scratch and gouge until my skin was covered with welts. The eczema spared no part of my anatomy. At times, I appeared to have a venereal disease that had been cooked up in some offshore weapons lab. Women did not find it attractive. But death ended all that, and I sat there in the bar drinking a light beer. Light beer hadn't been invented in 69, but in the afterlife they have everything. Don't ask me why a dead guy would be drinking a light beer, though. Some mysteries remain eternal. The two high school kids from the Mustang tried to get something to drink and were carted. They were ticked off, but rules are rules. Just because you're dead doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. A hostess finally stuck her head in the bar and motioned that my table was ready. I followed her, not knowing yet what was going on, but accepting it, as one does in a dream. She seated me alone at a table with a stiff white tablecloth and a flickering candle in a silver base. An older gentleman approached, slender and tall, with silvery hair and a black jacket with tails and a bow tie that sparkled like the Milky Way. He carried a black leather folder. Bowing slightly, he said, Good evening, Bert. My name's Pinky, and I'll be your waiter. He handed me a menu and told me about the specials in a voice fit for poetry. I picked the redfish with amandine sauce and capers. He recommended a wine, and I nodded approvingly, as if I knew from wines. He served the meal, and I ate. The fish was light and flaky, the sauce unobtrusive. Nothing else happened. And I began to think that the afterlife was nothing more than dinner in a restaurant that you can't afford on earth. But when I'd finished and sat there dabbing my lips, Pinky reappeared with another black leather folder. 
the dessert menu, I thought, or maybe the check. For a moment, I was terrified that if I didn't have enough cash, I'd go to hell. But when he took my plate away and set the folder before me, I saw, written in gilt script on the cover, Your Next Life. I opened the folder. At the top of the first page, also in gilt script, were the words, Menu of Lives. I looked at Pinky. I don't understand. He gestured toward the menu. It's time to select your next life. I looked at the list. There weren't nearly as many choices as you might think, and although they all sounded good on paper, the descriptions were sketchy at best. Intelligent man. Successful in business. Beautiful woman. Bears large family. Politically astute man. Well-fed. Slim-waisted woman. Knowledge of her pathology. And so on. It didn't seem to be enough information. About this intelligent man, successful in business, I said. What kind of business? Where does he live? Do girls like him? Pinky shrugged. It's possible. I only know what's on the menu. It just doesn't seem like much to go on. He cleared his throat. Would you like to see the dessert menu first? Perhaps an after-dinner drink would help. I can offer you a nice port. I scratched my head. Did I do this last time? Did I pick the life that just ended? He opened his order pad, licked his thumb, and flipped back a few pages. Oh yes, he said, here it is. Last time you ordered, man with steady job and someone to love him. I stiffened. But that's not what I got, I said. There was some mistake. He looked at me without expression. Well, okay, I said. I did have a steady job. I hung wallpaper for 28 freaking years. Can't get steadier than that. But the other part, someone to love me. Pinky consulted his notes. I believe there was a, a Dimkins, Carl Dimkins. Your boss said, let's see, wallpaper. I shuddered. Okay, okay. I flipped back through the menu of lives, but everything seemed so open-ended, so subject to interpretation that I couldn't decide. Do I have to choose one, I asked? Can I just hang out here? Well, he said, lower lip bulging, you can always go back in the pool. What's that, a holding tank for homeless souls? A cosmic soup of life forces? The clerical pool, he said. Someone has to keep records of all this stuff. I hated typing. Looking at the menu again, I noticed a promising item halfway down the page. Oh, here we go, I said, pointing. I'll be the handsome, well-hung heir to the throne. Pinky winced. Unfortunately, he said, we just ran out. That always goes quickly. I turned back to the menu, but nothing else seemed to hold much promise. Well, I can't choose. What do you recommend? He smiled and spread his hands. They're all good. I saw that he was going to be no help. I gave up. Okay, I said. Bring me a cognac and the tres leches. After that, I'll take the sexy man, good sense of direction. Excellent choices, he said. That'll be right out. After dessert, I was reborn in second century Rome. My father sold me to the military for a bushel of wheat. When I reached puberty, I was sent to Gaul, where I spent ten years as a scout, finding the way for invading legions. We never got lost. I met no women other than slave prostitutes, who loved me but gave me syphilis and crabs nonetheless. I died when a band of Goths caught me admiring my reflection in a stream and split my skull with a stone axe. But I have to say, until that moment, I looked good. End. Stephen Gullion's other fiction has appeared in Night Train, In Posse, 
Smoke Long Quarterly, The Adirondack Review, Opium Magazine, and others, and is forthcoming in the Barcelona Review and Story Glossia. 12 Steps Down, written and read by Mark Budman. Listening time, five minutes. 12 Steps Down, by Mark Budman. Saskia van Rijn lies across the entrance, guarding her domicile. It doesn't bother to move. Land has never seen her thin, but she's bloated to 20 pounds in the last few months. Lynn's wife says it's mental, a switch in Saskia's brain doesn't function to tell her she had enough food already. Lynn carries a cardboard box in his hands, his soldier's pack, but instead of ammunition and food ration, it holds his coffee cup, books and pictures. The news he has received earlier this morning cling to his shoulders like arthritis, impossible to shake off. Len steps over Saskia, nearly losing his balance. Good thing they left him health insurance for a while, transitionally call it, and the government calls it COBRA, both names threatening and suspicious when you're 50 and the economy is shaky. Twelve steps below is chilly and smells of cat's litter. The fluorescent light flickers, but soon he will have time to fix it. Len drops the box on the carpet next to a fresh stain. Oh, Saskia, sweet Saskia. A framed award for his 10th patent and a textbook, Advancements in Microelectronics, with his name on the cover, spill onto the floor. They will be safe for now. It's damp here in the summer, but now the air is dry. He wipes the dust from the plastic chair with the rock Saskia slips on, rubs his hands together to get rid of her black, white, and brown hair, and sits down. He stares at his fingernails. They are too long, and the ring fingers discolored from a chemical burn. He slumps against the back of the chair and closes his eyes. The world above him continues its rotation, but Len sits still. If he dies here... Will he dry up and turn into a mummy? In the back of his mind, he realizes the process of mummification requires an outside help, and the Saskia's paws are not suited for such fine work, but he chooses to disregard this fact. Will anybody find him? His wife never comes down. She's afraid to descend below the surface on the earth of the earth before her time comes. Will anybody care that he is missing? He is certain that the traces of his existence are slowly disappearing from the face of the earth. The phone in his former office is being disconnected. His email ID is being erased. His name is being removed from the company's roster. Yes, he will be a mommy. He'll haunt his former boss. He practices a mommy's voice. I shall return, prepare to die. His boss has no idea what being 50 means. He's 30-something, he still thinks that he'd live forever and can find any job he wants.
Something soft bumps against Len's shin. His heart skips. He hopes it's a rat, even a giant rat, and nothing worse. He opens his eyes. It's Saskia. He swallows. His hands shake. She puts her paws on his knee and screeches in the voice of an unemployed urban banshee. Hunger grows like a, a thousand candles inside her eyes. How dares she interrupt such a grave moment for something as prosaic as food? Yet her hunger is contagious. His stomach begins to churn. He gets up. She runs upstairs in front of him, in front of him, kicking with her tragic paws in her elegant white socks. Left side limbs, right side limbs, left side limbs, right side limbs, moving like pistons of an indestructible machine. Only cats giraffes and camels run this way. When she reaches the landing, she turns and glares at him. He sighs. He grabs the rail with his right hand. Gravity sucks out his resolve like a hungry maw. The first step is the hardest. The next one will be easier. He sincerely hopes so. Mark Budman's works have appeared in such literary magazines as Mississippi Review, Virginia Quarterly, Exquisite Corpse, Iowa Review, McSweeney's, Café Ereal, Another Chicago, and the Bloomsbury Review. He is the publisher of a flash fiction magazine, Vestal Review, and the recipient of the Broome County Art Council grant. One of his stories has been accepted for the new W.W. Norton anthology of flash fiction. The Poet's Head is in My Lap, written by Elizabeth Ellen, read by Anne Rushton. Listening time, eight minutes. The Poet's Head is in My Lap, by Elizabeth Ellen. The Poet's Head is in My Lap, his legs entwined between mine. The Poet is wearing flimsy tennis shoes and a worn jean jacket and doesn't look like a poet at all. My surprise at seeing him for the first time this morning did not escape his notice. You thought you were in the wrong room, he smiled into my ear an hour later in the pub across the street. And I shyly nodded and hid my face, which was flushed both from the warmth of the bar and the directness of his questioning in the lining of his jacket. Our speech by then had been liberated by the half-pints of ale that slid too easily down our throats and swelled our otherwise empty stomachs. The poet bears little resemblance to the photo on the jacket of the book currently between my fingers. The man in the small black-and-white photograph has neatly cropped hair, large muscles, and angry eyes. The man in the photograph looks dangerous. I stare at him, imagining his heavy fists raised in the air ugly words spewing forth from his tightly clenched mouth. The man whose cheek is pressed firmly to my swollen belly is not dangerous. His small body is curled and twisted around mine, offering passers-by the impression of a child resting safely within the confines of his mother's body. We, the poet and I, are nestled in the warm grass, sharing the lawn with similarly entangled pairs of bodies on this cloudless spring afternoon. I am unaccustomed to drinking during the day, 
and the heaviness of my head confirms this fact. I am unaccustomed also to men I have just met falling asleep stretched out over top my abdomen, their fingers traveling upwards beneath the stiff fabric of my shirt, preferring the softness of my skin, and yet, here is the poet, asleep beneath my gaze, warming my middle with his unlabored breasts. The sun inches tentatively across the sky. The poet's head rises and falls. More rapidly now I turn the pages of his book, lost to the words within, rushing through them toward an end, momentarily forgetting their creator in so doing. For twenty minutes or half an hour or long enough for the sun to pass beneath the branches of the tree overhead, the poet rests, does not stir, remains peaceful in his stillness, until, eventually, perhaps sensing somewhere in his subconscious my abandonment of him, he moves, turns and tosses, emits from a place I could not see a low moan like the call of a calf, and I turn immediately to him, watching his mouth for spilled words as his lips and eyes flutter, erupting small bumps on the skin that lies beneath. I stroke his head, smooth the matted hair from his face, soothe him back into slumber with whispered words of affection like the lover I am not, and when his body is content and motionless once more, I turn again to the book which speaks to me as he cannot. His poetry is log complaints, tales of unanswered longings and hijacked lovers. It speaks indulgently of motherless men seeking redemption in the arms of wayward women, anchoring themselves unsuccessfully to their restless bodies and being cast unapologetically aside. I read with one hand holding the book, the other cradling the poet's head, I read and am undone by his story. I read and am enamored by his needs, which are many. I read and am overcome with the knowledge that I alone will be the assager of his fears. I will stay with you, I tell him through pressed lips. I will stay and hold you as you wish to be held. I will clutch you to me day and night. I will not tire nor waver in my purpose. I will place you on your back and preside over you with the strength of ten men. I will wipe clean your memories with one well-positioned knee to the throat. I will quell your nightmares with one hand over your nose and the other covering your mouth. I will do the things the other women would not. I will do the things of which you were too ashamed to speak. The poet's body grows heavy over top me reminding me of my weighted bladder and the overwhelming need to empty it. The sun is a constant presence on our backs, creating a pooling layer of moisture between our adhered bodies and a pounding in my head. My legs, confined between his, have begun to ache, and my eyes jump from page to page, overlooking the words they deem unimportant, racing ahead to the acknowledgments and, once more, the dangerous man's photograph. His poetry has made an amnesic of me. I have forgotten, in my study of his confessional lines, my own poems, yet unpublished, sitting in a neat stack upon my desk. In my intoxication with his language, 
I failed to remember my own linguistic call for a lover, someone who will take me on his knee, allow me to sleep folded like a small child or pet upon his lap, let me call him daddy when I am good, and wash my mouth out when I am not. We could take turns, I stupidly think. On Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays I will address his wants, answer his questions, meet his unmet needs. Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays he will reciprocate. Sundays we will rest. Sundays we will play Scrabble and Cribbage and Parcheesi. Sundays we will be the quiet couple you see at Denny's, sharing a grand slam, buttering our toast. The poet suddenly unwinds his legs, dislocates his limbs, liberates himself from my body. The poet sits up, speaks of his desires, for coffee, a bathroom, a place to write. We walk awkwardly down the street, two separate entities, unhinged from one another at last. He leads and I follow. He opens a door and I step through it. We sit, the poet and I, in a familiar cafe at separate tables and write what is in our heads. We write and form our goodbyes, create our apologies for the thoughts unspoken, the feelings only guessed at. We part as friends, each wrapping an arm shyly about the other, speaking of future meetings though we know there will be none. We part as friends. We part dissatisfied lovers. We part with a quiet feeling of failure. I more than he, he having long ago grown accustomed to the feeling, he having made a career of it, a life. The End Elizabeth Ellen is editor of Hobart's Short Flight, Long Drive mini-book division. Her writing has been published in Spork, Pindalibas, Maison Nueve, The Insomniac Reader, Manic D Press, and an assortment of other fine journals. She lives in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Yellow Chicken Claw, written and read by Christine Boyka Kluge. Listening time, two minutes. Yellow Chicken Claw, by Christine Boyka Kluge. Her hand plucked at the blanket like a yellow chicken claw. The wool rose and pinched hills and spread out before her like an overgrown field. The satin binding cascaded over her concave stomach. She gripped its green ripples, holding fast. From above, here it was, the brook that formed the western border of the farm. Where were the peach trees? Where were all the cows and sheep? Where were the jelly rolls of hay, sweet and moldy? Pink embroidered roses bloomed on the bodice of her nightgown. She touched the faded petals and called for her mother. There was no answer. Her mother must be in the backyard, feeding the chickens, shaking the python like a tambourine. She was probably clomping back and forth in her father's galoshes, the rattling buckles driving the rooster mad. He would circle her rubber ankles, beak-stabbing, hysterical and demanding. The blanket stretched like a pilled and threadbare meadow between her knees. This bed seemed way too small for giving birth to three girls and a boy. First Anna then Ellen, then Constance, then, at last, Jonathan. 
She strained to hear their voices. All she heard was the laughter of the lazy cows at the nurse's station. She wanted coffee and cream in her blue mug. She wanted scrambled eggs with a touch of vanilla. She wanted her mother's cool hand on her forehead. Her own hand looked so funny. She felt the left one with the right, twigs in a silk glove. There were urgent whispers in the hall, then beeping. Purposeful feet squeaked across the linoleum. Downstairs in the kitchen, her father's radio hummed with static, trapped between stations. Christine Boyka Kluge's first book of poetry, Teaching Bones to Fly, was published by Bitter Oleander Press. In 2007, Bitter Oleander Press will release a second book, Stirring the Mirror, a collection of prose, poetry, and flash fiction. Her chapbook, Domestic Weather, won the 2003 Uccelli Press Chapbook Contest. She is also a visual artist. Thanks for listening to this edition of Bound Off. Copyright Bound Off and the respective authors. All rights reserved. Visit our website at boundoff.com for information about our broadcasts and how to submit your stories.